Dear Father in heaven, this, more, this afternoon, we, how thankful we are to be able to gather once again and examine the priorities that you inspired Peter to write about in his epistle. An epistle that speaks to us even today in these last days. And Lord, we want to have understanding of the priorities that you would have us apply into our lives and put into practice so that we ourselves can be ready and prepared for your soon return, but also so that the body of Christ, our churches, can also do a work that will prepare many, many for your soon return. So Lord, please bless us as we spend this this time together once again. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when it comes to roles, we all play different roles. We, we all play various roles in our life. You know, the word role is defined in the Webster's Dictionary as the function assumed or part played by a person or thing in a particular situation, the role. So when it comes to your career, for example, we'd like to share, we're family here, when it comes to your career, what role do you have? What role do you play? Anyone like to share? What, what role do you play in your career? Okay, you're in sales. What's that? Okay, all right, all right. So he's in sales, okay, very specific role. What are the roles do we have here today? Huh? I'm a great-grandpa. Okay, a great-grandpa. Very good, a very important role, Yes. Okay, very good. Very distinct roles. Okay. Massage therapist. One more. Sensors. Very good. So you see, we have in this room alone, we have so many distinct roles. But the, but the, the, the curious thing is that each one of us, we understand our role. We, we know what our roles are. Uh, we don't question our role. Most of us don't question our role because it's been set very clearly what I'm supposed to do. Roles. When it comes to family, we have roles too. Right, brother? Tell us again, what's your role again? Grandpa, great-grandpa. Great-grandpa. Not just grandpa, but your great-grandpa. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So in the family, we all have different roles, Right? So I, I come to, I personally, let me tell you my, my little personal story. I, I personally come to recognize the variety of roles when we have family reunions, especially when it comes in the context of the marriage. Um, my wife, Heidi, for example, she'll say, honey, could you please keep your eyes on Elijah Mariah as we go to the park? See, that's my role as a father. I, 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 I will do that. I'll, I'll be watchful. I'll protect them. I'll I'll." supervise them. That's my role. Um, or I'll say, honey, my mom is willing to watch the kids this evening. Why don't we go out and do something special? Let's go for a walk. Let's go to, you know, let's go out, right? My role as a husband, you know, that role includes being able to nurture our marriage and, and, um, and whatnot. So it's a role. Uh, my dad will tell me, hey, let's go, let's work on this project together, and we'll spend hours together working on something. Well, that's my role as a son, being able to come alongside my dad and work on a project together. Uh, then a little bit later, my sister will say, 
Oh, let me tell you what's, what's happening this summer. I got to tell you what I'm doing. What do you think I should do? I, I need some advice. My role as a big brother, right? Um, my grandma would say, when are you going to come and visit me? Is that, isn't that a common question grandmas ask, huh? When are you going to come and visit me? Well, my role as a grandson, um, my brother-in-law, Carlos, hey, let's go play basketball. My role as a brother-in-law. It's about that relationship. So you can see I have different roles. And this is just in the family, right? And so do you. We all have different roles. And no one argues with that. Everyone understands that. Everyone expects it. It's an expectation. But I want to tell you today that if we claim to be Christians, we have additional distinct roles. Let's have family worship. Mm. That's my role as a spiritual leader in the family. Honey, let's pray together. That's my role. Lord, I, I trust you. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. That's my role as a faithful believer, as a devout believer. Lord, how can I minister to others? That's my role as a modern-day disciple in these last days. And I'm assuming that in this room, all of us, all of us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. I believe that that's the case for all of us. And as we examine these roles, especially this, these distinct roles, these ought to be roles that we all share in common. It's a priority in the life of the Christian to recognize their identity and what their role is as a modern-day disciple of Christ in the body of Christ in the church. And if it's not something that, that you're convicted of or you pay much attention to, maybe it's time to reprioritize in these last days. Um, Peter's fourth priority demands an answer to the question, what is God's role for me in the church? What is God's role for me in the church? And so today we're going to discover how to begin the journey, how to begin the journey of identifying God's calling for us as modern-day disciples in his church in these last days. So I have a series of questions I want to ask you. That, that will set the tone for, that will pave the way for our fourth priority today. The first question is this. Who's responsible for assigning spiritual gifts to each individual person? The Holy Spirit. Does anyone know where, that, where the ref, biblical reference is for that? Come with me to 1 Corinthians and we'll take a look at it together. Because that's the right answer. That's the right answer. The Holy Spirit is responsible for assigning spiritual gifts to each individual. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. And so listen to what Paul writes here. He writes... In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
there are differences of ministries, I'm reading from the New King James, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of who? Of all. For the profit of all. Hmm. For, one is, for one is given, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So, point number one that we have to understand is simply this, that the Holy Spirit is responsible for assigning Spiritual gifts to each individual person. That's why in our nominating committees, we ought to spend a significant amount of time at the very beginning of every session, at every moment, making sure that we are absolutely in tune with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit will manifest His His will to the committee. Because he is the one who assigns roles. Not just the people, you know, assigned to be in that committee. Anyways, we're going we're gonna to touch on the practical aspect of today's priority and how we can apply that to a nominating committee towards the end. But yes, the Holy Spirit is responsible for assigning spiritual gifts. So second question. What is the specific purpose of spiritual gifts? Notice I say specific purpose. How would you answer that question? What is the specific purpose of spiritual gifts? Okay. To what? To what the church? Edifying the church. For ministry and service. Okay. Those are those those sum it up pretty good. Any other responses? For the Lord. Okay. Okay. Do you know where the answer is for this question? There is a, a passage that specifically outlines the purpose for spiritual gifts. You know where it is? Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Listen to this. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Here it is. Here are the reasons. These are the specific purposes for spiritual gifts. If you ever wondered, here it is. It's for, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I mean, those are, those are straightforward, black and white reasons or purposes for spiritual gifts. Which, by the way, I, I like the New King James because it actually makes no use of a comma where it really shouldn't be. 
Because there are some translations, I believe, I believe I want to say the King James Version maybe. Yeah, the King James Version, okay. Has a comma where there shouldn't be a comma. Yeah, because, because it'll say, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But that comma shouldn't be there, just like the comma with the thief on the cross, right? Because biblically speaking, the saints are equipped for the work of ministry. So, for the, edif- for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. That's one reason. Second, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so the purpose of spiritual gifts is to equip you and me for the work of ministry, which in turn builds up the church. That's the specific purpose for spiritual gifts. And so then the question, the third question I would have to ask is how do we begin the Spirit's, Holy Spirit's work of calling in my life? How, how, do, I, how do I give permission? How do I open the door to? How, how, do I, how do I begin the Holy Spirit's work in my life? How does it begin? How does it all begin? <laughs> Someone said it. What was that? Simple enough, ask. Come with me to Luke. You'll see You'll see Jesus himself, Jesus himself telling us what ought to be done. Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 9 to 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13. So Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks... And he who seeks finds. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks you for bread, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So we begin the work, the Holy Spirit's work of calling in our lives by asking Him to begin. By asking Him to begin. And what kind of work will He begin? What will He do? When we, when we ask for the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, what will He do? Hmm. I want to take you to a verse found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Come with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. As we, as we begin to answer the, the question, what will the Holy Spirit do as he begins his work of calling me into ministry? What will he do in my life? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, we find a statement that John the Baptist made. And there is a phrase there that captivated my attention. In verse 11, he said, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Notice this last phrase. He will baptize you 
with uh, who? Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we all know what the baptism with water is. We all know what that is. Either we've been baptized ourselves or we've witnessed a baptism. But, but what is this baptism of fire? Baptism with fire. Hmm. Are these two distinct baptisms? Are these, are these two alternatives where you can choose one or the other? Hmm. Is this talking about literal fire or is it talking about something different? That expression and fire. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read that years ago, I remember thinking about it and thinking, what does that really mean? Well, I've discovered that it's not a reference to an additional baptism or an alternative, rather to the same. But when you look at the, the word chi in the Greek, it's such a common use. The word chi is found throughout the Old New Testament. And the word chi is translated in English and, but it also means also, to, T-O-O, to, or therefore. It has all those meanings. We find the English using all those words when translating the word chi. And so, so I believe that it is an expression that enforces a single thought. It completes the idea. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit, therefore fire. With the Holy Spirit and fire. With the Holy Spirit, fire too. With the Holy Spirit and fire. It's, it's, it's a single thought. And so when the Holy Spirit takes possession of the heart, the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in us is similar to the effect of fire in the natural world, of real fire. Let me, let me expound on that. And we'll go, we're going somewhere with this because it will bring us back in full circle to our fourth priority, and you'll see how. You know, Jesus himself said in Luke 12.49, if you want to write this reference down, you know what Jesus says? I have come to set the world on fire. Mm, I love that statement. Luke 12, 49. I have come to set the world on fire. And so let's take a look at three characteristics. We could probably come up with several others, but we'll focus on three for today. Three characteristics of, of, of real natural fire and how that teaches us something about the nature of the, and character of the work of the Holy Spirit. The first thing that fire does is that fire reveals. Fire does what? Reveals. Reveals. Fire reveals. You know, picture yourself in a dark room. And there in the far distance, you see something on the wall. And, and, and you see it on the wall, but you can't quite see what it actually is. And, and then you have fire. You light up fire, and as you light up that fire, it begins to reveal to you what's before you. And as you get closer with that fire, you'll discover that what you see is actually a painting on the wall. And as you get closer and closer with that fire, you, it reveals some defects in that painting. It, it reveals some tears. It reveals some 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 flaws in that painting because the closer you get to it with fire the more it reveals 
And so in the same way, fire reveals. And, and Paul draws our attention to revealing fire in 1 Corinthians 3.13. There, there's a reference there in 1 Corinthians 3.13 of how fire reveals. Um, Paul writes that each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So there is biblical support to the concept that fire reveals. Fire reveals. Our characters will be revealed by fire. They will be revealed and tested by fire. And he also warns of those who in the last days will deny the power of revealing fire in the last days. They're going to deny the power of revealing fire. So the fire, the fire reveals uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 4, um, describes, Paul describes here men who will be lovers of themselves. There in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. It's quite an impressive list. It's quite a troubling list. It's quite a, an alarming list. And then verse 5 takes us from bad to worse because it says this whole list of characters all have a form of godliness, but denying its power, denying its power. In other words, Paul warns that there's going to be those who will be lovers of themselves who will, who will hold church office. Because this, this passage is describing people who profess to be religious. Uh, Paul warns that the unholy will sing sacred hymns. Paul warns that the unloving will walk the fellowship hall. Paul warns that blasphemers will preach behind pulpits. Paul warns that lovers of money will sit on finance committees, and so on and so forth. He's describing religious church people here. They all act religious but reject the power that could reveal to them their greatest need and lead them to repentance. See, these are people who deny the power of the revealing fire. And inspired writers, like Paul, often delivered strong rebukes. But they made no apologies because it was God's opinion, not their own. It was God's revelation. The role of a prophet is to say it like it is. They're God's mouthpiece. The relation comes straight from God and and it sees through the layers of pretense. The fire of the Holy Spirit reveals. It reveals. Listen to these words by Ellen G. White that rebukes the condition of those that deny the power revealing fire in their lives. This is from Review and Herald, um, January 3, 1893. And listen to what she has to say. While Christ is at work to preserve a pure church in the earth, Satan ever seeks to counteract his agency and work. Christians are found in the church of God. For we find men, while professing the name of Christ, more firmly united to Satan than they are with pure and holy influences. They gather darkness and unbelief from Satan, and they communicate it to the church. They profess to have the power of discernment, and discover spots and stains in the character of their brethren, and are not slow to communicate their suspicions to other members of the church. They distribute the leaven of distrust and malice and accusation, and as a result, alienation, 
come between brethren. All these false accusers, though their names are on the book records, are under the power and control of Satan and work as his agents to weaken and confuse the church and divide the brethren of Christ on earth. When this has been accomplished, Satan exalts over the divided state of the church and points the world to the professed followers of Christ, thus bringing the name of Christ into dishonor before the world and entrenching men in their unbelief and rebellion against God. Mm. So you can see why we must, more than ever before, pray to be baptized with the revealing fire of the Holy Spirit. So we can see ourselves as God sees us. We must see what God sees. And the Holy Spirit alone can do that. A second characteristic of, 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 of fire is that fire consumes. Fire just what? Consumes. It, it, it purges. It, it purifies. Fire consumes. Um, come with me to Malachi chapter 3. Uh, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this biblical reference that, that describes the character of fire in the person of the Holy Spirit. Or the character of fire as an instrument in the hands of God. Listen. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand before he appears, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like flounder's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. They may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now we're coming to what you were asking about, sister, a little bit earlier. The fire comes as a, a refining and purifying presence in the life of God's people. He is like a refiner's fire. And notice there that there is a reference to fire and soap. That's because there, are, there, there is a total cleansing that God desires to do in our lives. But there is a cleansing within that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit. See, we can, we can, we can make changes in our lives. We can change our behaviors. We can, we can have you know, the exercise the will to, to, to conduct ourselves in a godly manner and to, and to make choices um, that are pleasing to God. But there is, there's a certain aspect of the cleansing that it are matters of the heart that the fire of the Holy Spirit alone can cleanse and purify. It's like an experience I've had often, and you probably have too, when you're cleaning a window or a mirror or a window, a window, a window. You're cleaning the window and you, you, you have that paper towel in the Windex, and you're scrubbing that window, especially in a car. And, and as you're scrubbing, you, you can't help but to notice that it doesn't, there appears to be spots. There appear to be spots that don't seem to come off until you realize, oh, wait a minute. It's on the other side. It's on the inside. You know, you're, you're cleaning the outside of the car, and then it's like, ah, uh, then you open the door, you go on the inside, ah, now it's coming off. Well, that's a simple illustration of how we are unclean on the inside, in the heart, and the fire of the Holy Spirit alone can purify us. So the fire of the Holy Spirit purifies, and I love this, because the Holy Spirit consumes and purifies that which He reveals and exposes in our lives. 
So he doesn't leave us in our sin. He comes and he consumes that which he exposes in our lives, which we agree with God that needs cleansing. And he does it. He purifies us. He refines us. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, let's go to that reference. What happens as, as we are consumed, as we are purified, as we're refined, you know what we become? We become a vessel of honor. We become a vessel of honor. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and what? And useful, do you see that? And useful for who? For the master, prepare for every good work. Ah, we're, we're, we're getting closer back to, to, the, to, to, to the priority. When the Holy Spirit reveals to us our, our, our filth and our sin and, and those things which hinder us from growing in Christ and from being able to, to, to be useful in the hands of God, God reveals that to us. We agree with Him. He purifies us, consumes us. And now we are transformed into vessels of honor, for honor, sanctified again and useful for the master useful for the master but some of you may say ah but pastor wait a minute you obviously don't know me ah you don't know me you don't know my story you don't know what i've done you don't know my 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 story god god cannot use me if you only knew who i am and what i've done ah i'm useful I'm useless, rather. I'm useless. I, I, I don't feel like God can no longer use me. Mm. Because, wait a minute, because, you're right, because God can do anything. And according to who are you useless? Not to God. Because let me remind you of who he had to work with in the past. Jacob. Jacob was a cheater. You know what he did. Peter had a temper. Uh, you know Peter's character. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Useless? <laughs> uh, Jonah, he ran away from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Marion was a gossiper. Useless? Uh, Martha was a worrier, worried. She worried too much. Thomas was a doubter. Uh, Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was short. Aram was old. Lazarus was dead. <laughs> I mean, come on, useless? Useless? <laughs> useless? You know, can, can you relate to any of the people I just mentioned? And more so, can you relate to, to, to their to their life story. And I would venture to say that many of us would relate to, including me, especially me, would relate to these shady characters, if not all. And why? If only because, what do we have in common with this, this, this list that I just read? We're all human beings. <laughs> We're all human beings. These aren't just superheroes that that are untouchable. No, these, these, are, these are human beings, just like you and me. Just like you and me. And, and yet each one of them, each one of them 
And every one of us has a testimony before angels that even the angels will long to look into these things. And each one of us has a testimony to tell. Ellen G. White makes another profound statement when she wrote this. When we have entire, wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by an outpouring of His Spirit without measure. But this will, will not be while the largest portion of the church are not labors together with God. The reality is this, that God has a people. God has a people that he wants to be able to sanctify. He wants to be able to, to, to reveal to us our need of him. He wants to be able to purify us and refine us. He wants us to, to be consecrated wholeheartedly to him. But this cannot be done without the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do that work in us in preparation for even greater things as the Holy Spirit makes us useful instruments in his hands. This leads me to a third and final characteristic of fire. We've talked about fire reveals, fire consumes. But fire also empowers us to ministry. Fire empowers. My dad tells me the story of when he was a little child, how he would go up to the train station in Uruguay. And, um, and he, would, he would love to get on board to these locomotives, to these huge trains that, that, were, uh, that had engines that operated with fire. And, uh, and he would get inside these trains and, and he would pretend that he was traveling the world, you know, you know, just using his imagination, pretending he was going all over the country. Of course, that engine was, was cold. It was, it was not going anywhere. It was just there. But my dad went all over the world in his imagination. What was missing was fire. What was missing was fire to, to, to move this train and to get it started, to be able to advance and move. Well, in the same way, the fire of the Holy Spirit empowers us, equips us to do a work of ministry. And this is where now I want to be able to focus in on our role as useful vessels of honor, as men and women who are useful for the master. And we begin by looking at God's ideal for his people as found in the Garden of Eden. Let's go to the beginning. If we're going to understand where we're going and where we are now, we need, we need to know how we all, how it all began. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Look at Genesis chapter 1, and let's go to verse 27. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The Bible tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God created man, he created him in his own image, in his likeness. Then, in chapter 2, verse 18, 
if you would turn with me over one chapter to chapter 2, verse 18, we find here that the Lord, that the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So here we have Adam, created in his image, then given a helper. A woman created also in the image of God who would stand by Adam and together they would be able to have face-to-face communion with their maker. In chapter 3, verse 8, we find that it was a custom or a regular practice for the Creator God to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. There in verse 8, it tells us, when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What does that reveal to us? That it was, it was, it was something that Adam and Eve did regularly with the Creator. It was a, he was a God of relationships. He was a God who, who revealed himself as he was to Adam and Eve. And they beheld him and he beheld them. They had face-to-face communion with their maker. But we know the end of the, uh, the, the rest of the story. There in Genesis chapter 3, we know what happens. The relationship is broken. And as a result of that broken relationship, there's no longer direct communion between the Creator God and His creation. There's no more face-to-face encounters. Instead, God would be introducing a system of intermediaries that would stand between, that would go between the creation and the creator. And these chosen ones would intercede on behalf of the people since they no longer could have face-to-face communion with God. And a brief overview of this of this progression would, would be as follows. It began with a covenant with the firstborns. God would, would use the firstborns. He would ask that the parents set them apart for a holy purpose. And that holy purpose would be for them to be a go-between him, the creator, and his creation. Later, it became the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where they would be the go-between. They would be the ones that would, that would represent God to his people. And then finally, at the Exodus event, we have the priests. The priests would, would take on that role of being mediators between God and his people. But as you can see, this was all the result of sin. It was never God's ideal. God's ideal from the beginning was to have intimate communion, transparent communion between himself and his creation. But now it's a different story. The Old Testament priest would perform certain duties or have certain roles in among the people of Israel. They performed tasks that the people were unable to perform on their own. They, they, they played certain roles. Two in particular consisted of being go-betweens when people sinned and could not come directly before God for forgiveness. Only the priest came before God. If they were to be liberated or forgiven of their sin, they could not do it apart from the priest. They could not do it on their own, in the privateness of their own tent. They had to step out of the tent and make their way to the sanctuary carrying a lamb. It was the only way for them to be forgiven. So the priest had to come before God. The second 
is that the priests performed ministry for the people. They were not allowed to enter the sanctuary. Everything that happened within the courtyard were, was performed by the priest. The priest alone performed ministry. And so the functions of intercession between God and sinners and the ministry or the function of ministry were reserved exclusively for the priest in the Old Testament. But this yet was not God's ideal. Remember that Adam and Eve, they did not go, need go-betweens. When they were in the Garden of Eden, they, they did not need go-betweens. They, they, were, they were priests themselves. They, they obeyed God. They took direct orders from God, and they performed their duties. Um, they, they served God gladly. There was nothing between them. Russell Burrell, who's an author and pastor, pastor he's written books on, on uh, the priesthood of all believers. He writes this in one of his books. He writes, in God's plan, the redemptive ministry of Christ was to restore the relationship in Eden to those redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And then he points out, and rightly so, Calvary ended the Old Testament priestly system and restored the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. This is the joy of new life in Christ. Come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's go to verse 9. Because of the cross, because the Lamb of God came and was sacrificed to take away our sin, now Peter makes this declaration upon the redeemed. Notice their role. Notice what has been restored to the people of God because of what Christ accomplished on the cross on our behalf. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. He's talking about the redeemed. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about the believers, the disciples, the followers of Christ are now a royal priesthood themselves, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So here we have Peter identifying you and us, you and me, after the cross as a people belonging to a priesthood. And along with that role comes, of course, the functions. The functions that were once exclusively only for the priests in the Old Testament, in the sanctuary, have now been given over to us. And so the ministry of intercession is something that you and I can experience as we come before the Lord directly and boldly before his presence in time of need. And we'll find mercy and grace. We can drop down to our knees and be able to confess our sins. And he, our heavenly high priest, is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we, we come boldly before the throne of God, according to, to Hebrews. So we can, we take on that ministry. And second, the function of ministry as it pertains to the body of Christ is given now to us as believers redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So which means, which means 
that you and I have a distinct role, just as much or just as surely as the priests of the Old Testament had a role themselves. In Revelation chapter 5, um, I want to show you how Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, describes the redeemed at the end of time. All through the end, until the very end of time, the redeemed of God are made priests. Notice what is recorded there in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hath made us, see, made us, kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And so the sacrifice of Christ on the Christ, on the cross, is the decisive moment, the decisive moment when his people have been given or entrusted once again with the role of priests and kings. And so in Christ's kingdom, there's only one class, one class of people. We all stand before God as the priestly class to which all the believers are born when they accept Jesus Christ as their Redeemer, inwardly and in their hearts. I want to take you now back to our, our list of priorities. Will you return now with me to 1 Peter? Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Now that we've gotten that, that context, that background, now let's come back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And this is what it says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That manifold grace of God was demonstrated or manifested at, on the cross, what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. What he did on the cross, it gave us a ministry or a calling or a role, a role that we received as a gift to minister to one another as good stewards. The word stewards means someone who manages something that belongs to someone else. And as Christ redeemed us on the cross and gave us these gifts to exercise, we are called to be faithful stewards. And then verse 11 goes on to say, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. In other words, God calls us to be ministers in the priestly class now that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And he gives us the ability, supplies us with the ability to be able to accomplish and so fulfill that task or that role or that ministry. The Bible says that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so... When is a believer, person today in the 21st century, ordained as a priest? Ordained into the priestly class to perform the work of ministry. When is one ordained as a priest? You know? Aha, uh -huh, at baptism. Here, can I have a, a volunteer? See, Wilma, come here. Yeah. You just walked in, didn't you? No, I've been there. 
Oh, you've been there. Okay, That's come right. here. Oh, I've known Wilma Will for a long time. Yeah. So why don't you stand here a little bit here? Okay. Something that as a pastor, I, I, I actually began to practice myself years ago now. I've been doing this forever. And that is that when one is baptized, we come into that watery grave, right? Into that baptistry. And, uh, and as we stand in that watery grave here, why don't you stand just like this. As we stand in that watery grave, we were about to, to, to experience baptism. And what I tell the person is this. I say, listen, you're going to be baptized not once, but twice. Huh? What do you mean? Yeah, you're going to be baptized twice. Because as we stand in watery grave, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask God to baptize you with the baptism that I cannot. Have you ever seen, you've seen baptism. Have you ever seen that when someone is baptized, the minister in the water raises his hand and he does this? And there was, there was a time when I was at Southern, I was graduating and I was going to be going into this kind of work that I began to wonder at times, what, what, is, what is the significance of that hand that goes up? If, I, if, I, if you've seen baptism, you've seen that that hand is often placed in, in all directions, Sometimes it's back over here, other times it's straight up, other times it's here, and it's all over the place. Well, I, I, I wasn't satisfied with that. I wasn't, I wasn't content with that. I, I wanted to have a, a reason why I do what I do. And as I examined all these things, I realized that, wait a minute, this is very significant as it's placed very closely above the individual's head. As, as we're baptized... Yes, we're being ordained into the priestly class, into the priestly order. We're being ordained into the priesthood of all believers. And when the Bible often talks about, you know, and we do that with ordination services, when we've seen the ordination services last Sabbath, you know, with the ordination service last Sabbath, um, the laying on of hands, that's, that's, that's part of, of, the, of the outward tangible expression of of, of setting someone apart, the laying on of hands. And so as we're in that water, I pl- I'm placing their hands above their heads, and I'm, it's a laying on of hands, and I'm praying, Lord, baptize them with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what it symbolizes, which, by the way, in the book of Acts, when you see the, the term, and they laid their hands on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so I, I pray that he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit, and that he would set them apart for a holy purpose. They're being ordained as priests, into the priesthood of all believers. And then once we baptize, once they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, then they're baptized by water as well. Thanks. They're baptized by water. So you're absolutely right. It is at baptism. And as a priest now, you must offer a spiritual sacrifice to God. Every priest had a sacrifice to offer to God. What is the sacrifice that you and I as priests in, in the 21st century today Offer to God. What is that sacrifice? Ah, come with me to Romans 12, 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Ah, listen to what it says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. God is giving you instructions of how to function as priests and what your sacrifices ought to be. Your sacrifices ought to be your bodies. 
holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service, living sacrifice. But living sacrifice, living sacrifice? It's like an oxymoron, right? Living sacrifice. Just how can you, how can you use those two words together? Because a sacrifice is rightly understood as something that is put to death. But living sacrifice? Well, of course, Galatians 2.20 then answers that dilemma or, or resolves that mystery, right? I have, been, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been sacrificed. I've been put to death. I've been crucified with Christ. But nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Ah, lives in me, living sacrifice. So we are filled with the Holy Spirit, useful for the Master, with the mind of Christ. And since every believer is a priest, then every Christian really is a minister. We're all ministers. And we all have a ministry to perform. And not one can be a substitute for another. In Christ, in the body, we are all ministers. You are a minister, I am a minister. We each have distinct roles. Your role is to, is to be equipped for the work of ministry, to edify the church, to build up the church. My role as a fellow priest together with you is to be able to empower you and, and give you those opportunities to do the work of ministry. My role as a pastor is to put you to work, to give you the work of ministry. That's my role as a priest of God. Your role as a priest of God is to do the work of ministry that you receive from God as, as you seek to discover what calling God has given you. And so Peter's priority really starts to to make sense of why it's such a crucial priority, especially in these last days. Because the church of God is a living organism. It's, it's living. It has a heartbeat. It's alive. And if you and I claim to be a part of that body, we cannot be dead meat. We cannot be a part of a living organism and just vegetate and just be there and, and not recognize that you and I have a very active role to play. And I shared with you early on in, in our seminar that, that I would share with you briefly um, how we've been conducting nominating committees for the last several years. And it's been a process that I believe, um, you know, fits the biblical expectation or the biblical um, process. And it, 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 it frankly does follow the church manual as far as the, the election process of how a special committee nominates a nominating committee. And you understand why that is? Because the special committee is able to intentionally recognize the fitness of members to serve in the nominating committee and, and assures that there is a, a balanced representation in the nominating committee uh, of gender, of, of, of age, etc. And so now you have a nominating committee, and the nominating committee this is entrusted with the sacred work of being able to appoint leaders among the ministries of the church. And so the way that we, that, uh, that we began to do this was as follows. And I want to suggest it to you because you might want to consider proposing a similar approach because 
I've come to see that this really reflects the biblical model more than anything else, and that is this. Typically, in a nominating committee, you approach it with a, a list of all the offices, of all the vacancies, and now we have to start filling in all these positions. So we begin with, uh, you know, this role in this ministry and that ministry. Who are we going to fit in? Who are we going to plug in to serve in this ministry? The problem with starting with vacancies and with just a template of all these different offices to fill is that, is that we began to recognize people that have demonstrated leadership ability or whatnot, and we are quick to recognize them because they're, well, frankly, they can be quite vis- visible and um, they can make their presence well known, and and they're usually the the twenty percent that do most of the work. And so you 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 find it easy to recognize them and just oh let's plug him in because he's been doing this, and and we begin to fill that list. And once that list is filled, woohoo, we're done. We finished. We filled all the roles. And guess what? About eighty percent of the church was not even thought about because we we went to the ones that we always go to and who are always doing all the work but instead of doing it that way what we do is we begin with a working list of people we begin with people we begin with names what we do is we go through a process with the elders where we submit to the nominating committee a working list of members these members are those that are in the church that are prepared to serve in ministry uh, we don't include in that list those who are missing and inactive because they are a special people that we will give special attention to, but that will have to be ministered to in a special way before they can be prepared to be entrusted with leadership and responsibility. So they need care, special care. We're not neglecting them. We're just simply putting them in a separate category. We only have those that are prepared in the church ready to serve. Um, that list also includes those that are good and faithful stewards, uh, people that that you know with consultation with the treasurer, um, I'm able to recognize those that are faithful stewards, those that uh, give a faithful tithe, return a faithful tithe, and uh, to be able to then entrust them with spiritual responsibility as spiritual leaders in the church. And so, so this working list is is prepared, it's ready to go. We don't have to filter through it. And, uh, and names don't come up that are questionable because we've already dealt with those names. These are good working pe- list of names. So, so then in our case, we have, let's say, a 16-member committee. We divide up into subcommittees. So we have four groups of four. And each subcommittee is given uh, a list of names. We have A to Z, and then we divide into four parts. So each subcommittee gets a list of names. And as we go through that list of names, we're going to go one by one by one by one. Not a single name will be overlooked. Not a single name will be missed. We're going to intentionally, deliberately focus in on each name. And what we do is we look at the shape of each member. The shape, it's an acronym. Are you ready? Shape. We look at the shape of each member. What do we look for? We look for their strengths, S, strengths. We look for their heart, how they're, what they're passionate about. So we look for their strengths. We look for their heart. What do they get excited about? What, what turns them on? What gets them excited and, and ready to, 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 to serve? Then we look at their P personality. We, no, A, excuse me, A. Um, shape, heart, attitude. I'm going, I'm, I'm misspelling the word here. Sorry about that. Um, A is 
attitude. We look at attitude. We, we need to be able to examine a winning attitude and be able to identify a winning attitude. We want to be able to, to recognize the attitude of members. And then P is personality. We need to recognize personality. Because there are, there are roles in ministry, especially in the context of leadership, that necessitates certain personalities. Sometimes personalities will be a better match for a particular type of ministry. And then E is experience. We look at the experience of each person. Oftentimes, what's needed more than anything else is experience. Someone who's been in that field in a, in a particular way, who's, be, who's been able to learn how certain ministries can, can operate the best. And so experience. So we look at each, the shape of each member. And we ask ourselves, okay, having examined all this, well, how would they best edify our church? How would they best strengthen the church? How can they best um, serve in the church? What do we see them doing that will be the best for the church? And then we begin to just affirm their strengths and their abilities. And then we begin to say, oh, so-and-so, oh, they would be an excellent um, disciple in discipleship ministry because they have a love for people and they love to teach and they love to see people learn and grow. Oh, yeah, discipleship. And oh, so-and-so, oh, social ministry. Oh, they would be just so good at social ministry because they love to socialize. They have such, they have that kind of personality and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we go through each name. And then once we go through all the names and we go over hundreds of names because no one is missed. We don't just look at 20%. We look at 100% of the names. Once we're done with that, and that will take three or four sessions, then we compile all the names under each particular ministry. So we, we have all the ministries and all the names that were mentioned as individuals that would edify the church through that ministry. Then we, then we gather together once again as one nominating committee, no longer sub groups now we're one committee and we look at one ministry at a time and what we do is we look at that list some ministries may have 10 names other ministries may have 30 names but we look at each ministry and then we we simply ask ourselves what who are those that rise to the surface as leaders who has who has those leadership qualities leadership skills that are necessary to be able to operate this ministry and again we, we take a look at the shape of each member. We use the same, the same protocol, the same, the same focus. And we recognize leadership experience and leadership qualities and leadership skills and, and whatnot. And as, as we recognize them, we set them apart. And they become the individual that we nominate to serve as leader of that ministry. And then what we do then is once that individual accepts that role we will give them the list of names that have been discussed as people that we see could add additional support and benefit to the operation of that ministry. And that list is given to the leader. That's the first phase. Once we complete that phase, we, we tell the church that, praise the Lord, we have our leaders. Now, not everyone was nominated, obviously, because we're not all called to be leaders. God gives the gift of leadership to particular people. And so what do we do next? We have a ministry fair. And this ministry fair is held within a month of the start of the new term. And what we do is we transform the foyer 
into, into a exhibition of all the different ministries. They all showcase their ministry at a table at their booth, and they all have these, um, these trifold boards that have pictures of their ministry or description of their ministry, a mission statement, and they all, they all showcase their ministry, and members are given the opportunity after a small introduction during Sabbath morning, instead of a sermon, they all go into the foyer, and they are able to mingle and interact with all the ministry leaders that are standing behind the, the booths, um, showcasing their ministry, and ask them about their ministry. What, what, what is your ministry all about? And how they can engage in ministry, and how they can be involved in ministry. And the goal that we have is that all members be able to identify with the ministry that they could get excited about and be involved in and sign up. And so there's sign-up sheets. And by the end of the day, we have the majority of the church enlisted to do the work of ministry. And then the ministry leaders follow up with that list and contact each of those people that signed up to be involved. And, um, and then they have, they have visits and huddles and meetings to be able to engage members in ministry. And, and this, has been, this has been something that has simplified, not only simplified the nominating committee process, but it has given it a very positive um, dynamic because the initial phase is affirming, affirming, affirming people's strengths and gifts and, and what they're good at and what we can see them doing. And it's such a positive thing. And, very, and this has significantly reduced the moments of... Of, of, of tension and conflict that often characterizes nominating committees. Um, and this has been a true blessing. And it's often soaked in prayer, much prayer, being able to pray for the Holy Spirit to be the one who reveals to us what he has called people to do and the gifts that he has given them. Um, as you arrived here today, you were given a handout that included priority number three that we looked at yesterday. Can we take a moment as we wrap it up here to take a look at this? And in priority number three, uh, we talked about Peter's third priority in opening your homes to each other without complaining. It could be said opening your hearts to each other without complaining. And the practices to make Koinonia a personal priority some are listed there. These are things that we discuss as a group. And then there's practices to make Koinonia a, a corporate priority as a church, being able to develop that, that kind of spirit of Koinonia within the church. And today we looked at priority number four. If anyone ministers, let him do it. Best practices to make spiritual gifts a personal priority as well as a corporate priority. And you can take these, these lists along with the others that you have here if you missed one of the previous lectures. And church, friends, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you and I love the Lord. I know that we all love the Lord. I know that we all love His church. And as we see the coming of Christ drawing near and near, I believe that it is our responsibility to examine our hearts it's our responsibility to be able to say, Lord, what is the most urgent? What is the most important? How should I be investing my time? What should I be spending my time doing? By the grace of God, may these four priorities continue to unfold in your mind, in your heart. Because I am personally convicted that out of these four priorities, when they're put to practice, 
God will pour out His blessing upon you because you are a people that pray earnestly. You are a people that love one another. You are a people that experience koinonia, that unity, that one accordness. You are a people that exercise gifts to be able to edify the church. Once that dynamic happens and that is in place and that's the priority of the church, be ready, hold on tight because God will pour out His Spirit upon you in great measure and you will experience a revival of true godliness that is promised to us when we reprioritize and put our energy into what's most important and urgent. Amen? Amen. So God bless you richly. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, how thankful we are for being called out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for giving us the joy of being redeemed. Thank you for the calling, Lord, the high calling to not, not just go about our days with no sense of urgency or purpose or role. Thank you that you have made it very clear that we have a very divine and instinct, distinct role to play. And I ask, Lord, that as we go our separate ways at the end of camp meeting in all different directions, far and near, that as we take time to drop down to our knees, to pray earnestly, to be able to choose to love one another, regardless of our own emotions and feelings, when we choose to be able to participate and bring and press together with brothers and sisters and have that shared common experience when we choose to be able to serve you and accept the role you've given us at the cross i pray lord that we would all have a story to tell by your grace as we return to gather once together once again next year or a year from now well, may we all come together with a story to tell a story of great news, a story of revival, a story of transformation. And may, be, may it begin right now, right here in our hearts. It may be, be a ripple effect that would literally impact our churches and those around us. Thank you, Lord, for the sacred responsibility you've entrusted to us today. May thy will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.